Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All you need to do is take down the target quickly, then disappear. The commander reminded him down the comms unit. Yeppity yep, old man, replied David Davis, codename Silver Turkey. <sighs> Firstly, I'm younger than you. It's just everyone very quickly progressed past your lack of ability. And second, please can you just say affirmative like everyone else, Turkey? Yes, indeedy, replied Davis, as he clambered over a low wall, making it look harder than it was. When he finally got his left leg over, he knelt in the bushes and surveyed the area. He could see only leaves. Then he remembered he was in the bushes and so had to peer around them. Smart Double D, he knows what's going on. Somewhere in the complex in front of him was the target. Well, he assumed so anyway. He hadn't actually bothered to read the notes. I mean, what would he need those for? He'd got his high-vis jacket and brought a particularly large spoon to hit someone with. What else would be needed? A rustle nearby. Davis leapt back into the bush. Were they aware of him? He needed to stay really still and really calm. Any wrong moves now and his life could be on the line. His phone went off at full volume. Hmm, I'd better get that, thought Turkey. It might be important. As he answered, he heard the sounds of someone legging it down the street. Hello? We're calling up about the car accident that you weren't in that wasn't your fault. Oh, um, I don't remember that, but I bet someone else bloody well did cause it. Please tell me more, said Davis. The runner's steps got further and further away. That was a small excerpt from I Don't Have to Be Clever to Do My Job, a diary of David Davis's time in the Territorial SAS by Randy McJab. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that puts politics in a comedy marinade for about an hour, then bakes it in a tin of actual information before serving on a cold dish to someone who looks at it and says, "Uh, what the fuck is that? I ordered a pizza. This is episode 105, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week as bleached pork knuckle and US President Donald Trump says he'll know within the first minute if the North Korea summit is going well because of, and I quote, my touch, my feel, that's what I do, I'm concerned that we're going to have to tell our grandchildren that World War Three started because a scorched sex pest spent a historical meeting of nations trying to cup an alopecia-suffering panda. Ha! I joke, of course, as if anyone will survive to tell those sorts of tales. I'm also worried that Trump has got his meetings with Kims confused over the past few weeks, and while I'm very pleased that Kardashian escaped a tiny-handed harassment, does Mrs West now have weird security assurances from the White House on promise of disarmament? Yes, by the time you hear this, two dictators will have met, uh, as Fox News reported and then got in trouble for. It's so weird that for years they've been condemned for fake news, but as soon as they state actual facts, they get in even more trouble. Trump spent the weekend in Canada at the G7 summit where six other leaders babysat him, but sadly no one gave him crayons or a small toy plane on the flight back to the US. And so once home, Big Donnie tweeted that he was rejecting the G7's joint communique, aka rules on trade deals, due to false statements from Canadian president and someone who definitely play a president in a teen film about singing, Justin Trudeau. Yes, Trump accused someone else of making false statements. It couldn't have been a bigger Freudian projection if he'd spent the weekend beaming Sigmund's picture onto the tallest building in Quebec. 
So the US continues to be in a trade war with its closest allies, which is likely to lead to thousands of people losing their jobs and income, while its leader hangs out in Singapore for a likely meaningless photo op with a known murderer and abuser of human rights. Still, hey, while all those workers at European or UK steel factories or US bourbon distilleries are wondering how to pay their rent, at least they'll be able to point at a photo of Trump and Kim Jong-un and say, ha ha ha, they both look like if stupid dogs were turned into people. And that's all that matters, right? Over in the tragic kingdom, Brexit continues to make huge leaps nowards, as it has been confirmed that there is a backstop plan, although sadly not one that involves going back and actually stopping this tedious mayhem from happening. Instead, it just means that the UK remains tied to the EU if an Irish border solution hasn't been reached, so a bit like how rich children keep getting given an allowance if they still haven't bothered looking for jobs. Brexit secretary and a man who clearly laughs too loud at comments that aren't jokes because he doesn't understand them, David Davis, threatened to resign again if no time limit was given to the backstop. Prime Minister and constant walking advert for Shark Week, Theresa May, has refused to give a time limit though, showing that no one really cares about anything David Davis does. And he still hasn't resigned, showing that Brexit is definitely not about giving the people what they want, and also that we have a man negotiating Brexit who's unable to even negotiate leaving his own job. It's very likely Davis's resignation plans were just to sit and wait until someone else resigned for him, tell everyone how brilliantly he's going to do all by himself, and then write a reminder on his phone to Google what resigning means. MP Nadine Dorries, the sort of person you'd invite to the end of a party to make sure everyone else leaves, tweeted that Davis is ex-SAS, he's trained to survive, he's also trained to take people out. No idea who she thinks he should be taking out, because that's not how Brexit can work. You can't just kill everyone in the EU. Someone will definitely notice. Davis was also in the territorial SAS, which is less training him to survive, but more giving him a water pistol and doing everything they can to make sure that he isn't needed. And we all know the only reason Davis would actually survive anything is due to a Windy Miller level of fluky unawareness. The Cabinet have approved a plan for a third runway at Heathrow Airport, though Transport Secretary and Hellboy sidekick Chris Grayling is still in charge, so it's likely to be too small for a plane to land on and only in use once or twice a year at most. Environmental groups are rightly angry about the plans, which is why I reckon the smart thing to do would be to build the runway and then plant trees on it. Bada boom, everyone's happy. Foreign Secretary and gerbil taxidermied using gelatine, Boris Johnson, promised, as MP for Uxbridge and South Royslip, that he would lie down in front of bulldozers to prevent it. Something that I hope happens, not just because chances of his injuries are high, but it'd be interesting to see Boris preventing a hole from being dug for once, rather than just digging his own. The government also announced that affluent prune and media mogul Rupert Murdoch can buy the rest of Sky, but only if he sells off Sky News, which would likely be bought by Disney. Meanwhile, Disney is set to buy several of Murdoch's Fox entertainment business channels. So that could mean movie crossovers between Marvel's Avengers and Fox's X-Men and news crossovers of people in giant cartoon outfits reporting on the UK government's constant Mickey Mouse operations. Speaking of media moguls who are also awful shithawks, Paul Dacra, who looks like an old man did a face swap with a giant ass, is stepping down as editor of the Daily Mail, which means he'll be heading in the same way he's been punching for years. Hopefully he'll receive recognition for everything he's done over his 26 years in charge, and by that I mean I'll keep my fingers crossed that people boo him in the streets every day for the rest of his life, and that the Nobel specifically invents an anti-peace prize award shaped like a giant todger and made out of cowpats just for him. I also really hope all the Daily Mail staff band together and get him a one-way, one-pound P&O ferry trip, preferably to Europe, just to rub it in. More than 100,000 women marched across the UK on Sunday to commemorate it being 100 years since women got the vote, meaning that now, for a century, men and women alike can feel miserable and responsible for shitty election results. And lastly, Theresa May says she regrets her reaction in the immediate aftermath of the Grenfell Tower fire, saying that her actions made it appear that she didn't care. That is, of course, not true. It's just that she'd already used up all her tears crying about the snap election results, so had nothing left for real people. On a lighter note, after a contestant on hit reality show, sorry, I missed an S there, Love Island, said they didn't know what Brexit was, May admitted that she'd never watched the ITV2 programme. I'm certain that's because if she needs to hear people being clueless about Brexit, she already has her own cabinet. And anyway, she can't understand the idea of people having any sort of committed partnership for less than £1.5 billion. Hello, and a massive achoo from my stupid hay fever filled face today. It's so 
I'm so full of snot, it's so horrible. All the pollen is in my face. Um, this week's podcast has taken so, so long to make, purely because I've spent about 90% of my day sneezing. If, as people used to say, sneezing is supposedly an eighth of an orgasm, then let me tell you, I have had quite the day. Um, in truth, though, it's all been just a bit grim and snot-filled, and I was so certain I'd escaped the pollen menace this year. I'd had like a little dabble of sneezing in March, and I'd feared the worst, but then that turned out to be a cold, and I thought, yeah, take that, trees and plants. I am immune, but... Um, um, some sort of fauna has obviously got all jiggy today and it's absolutely taken me down. I bet it's the triffids. It's bloody, it's bloody triffids, isn't it? Anyway, uh, do have fun spotting every single time I have to edit a sneeze out of this show. Uh, clue, it is every other word. They really should find like, a way to generate electricity from sneezing or something just so that it's worthwhile. Green Party, I am looking at you and suddenly your name takes on a whole extra meaning. Uh, right, that is enough uh, snot talk. Um, anyway, thank you for listening to the show once again and I promise... It is a good one today. I mean, it's a good one every day. Not every day, every week. I don't know why I promised that, about this one specifically. In fact, I'm going to take back my promise in case you get suspicious about previous episodes and I don't want any communications from you about how this actually, this week's is not as good as previous week's and therefore I've broken a promise and now I have to live in the forest or whatever it is that people do when that happens. Um, But it's good. Is a good one. Anyway, speaking of nice communications, um, thank you to Rory, and I think that's how you pronounce it, R-U-A-R-I-D-H. Is that Rory? I must admit I'm really awful at Irish names because it could be spelt like that but pronounced David or, you know, a spatula or something. So apologies if that is wrong. I am an amateur. Anyway, Rory, I hope, um, tweeted me after listening to last week's show to point out that Scottish water is indeed already nationalised, putting us little Englanders to shame uh, again. Uh, putting us to shame again another time again, always again. Um, I'm aware that I often miss points of devolution policy when talking about stuff and that is because I live in stupidly London and I forget that some of the rest of you live in places where they do things properly. Um, I will try and get someone on for a Scotland update soon and a Wales chat at some point, which over two years of doing this I have totally neglected to do. Uh, Once again, everyone neglects Wales. I'm very sorry, Wales. Mine droog, which I probably also said wrong and offended someone by accident. Um, Also, uh, someone, and sorry, I can't remember who it was because of sneezing um someone dropped me a line to say that last week's show was again too quiet and my response to that is ah because i'm really not sure what to do without accidentally deafening you um i do all this to the specifications that i've been given i've cranked it a bit more this week and i've turned up the volume as well Arf. Um, seriously though, um, it is louder again and it's louder than it should be uh, this week. So please do let me know how this noise works for you, especially when I'm making noises right in your ear like... Ah! Big thank you to Annie M for donating to both the Patreon and the Kofi like a total hero. Be like Annie, um, because that is some amazing work. If you want to do a monthly dose of charity, then please donate even just $1 to the patreon.com forward slash parpolebro. And this week, because um, $1 is still worth 75p in exchange rates, I thought you should also know that $1 is worth uh, 0.85 euro cents. Um, I have no idea what you can buy for euro cents, because when I try and search my Google, it goes all a bit Brexit. Um, I'm guessing you can probably get a baked goods, uh, a baked good a baked goods um, or a naughty comic probably um, if you want to just buy me a coffee please do so at ko-fi.com that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro uh, and this week uh, for those of you that have bought me a coffee I had a frostino which is a very clever way of filling a cup with ice and just a smidgen of coffee so after you've drunk it you feel still tired and now poor as well winner um, anyway both of those donating links are at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk uh, last thing is that this coming Saturday, um, June the 16th, is the very first How Does This Politics Thing Work Then show, uh, which is the kids' politics comedy show that I've written with Tatton, the creator of simplepolitics.co.uk. That first show is at Farnham Maltings on Saturday the 16th. I think it's at 2pm. I should probably check. Have a look on their website. Um, and then on the 17th, we're at Underbelly Festival on Southbank at 3pm, where I'm also hosting a comedy club for kids' show that day, earlier uh, in the day at 12.30pm, maybe. Um, so come and see both. I'm really good on the facts loving my facts um we tried the politics show at school in ramsgate uh, last thursday and it worked really really well uh, the kids seemed to really enjoy it the teachers liked it as well and no one died so that is a win um please bring your small people and uh, come along for a guide to parliamentary politics with loads and loads of jokes um including some about centaurs because just because if you turn up you will see why um on this week's show i am interviewing former editor of schools week and regular education expert for the guardian laura McInerney, um all about um well, education, because it'd be very silly to interview her about something else entirely, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, it would. Um, there is also a little bit of Brexit fallout too, but before that, here is a little bit of this. 
Okay, so there's going to be a sparsity of gags for a minute or two because it is necessary. Um, On Thursday this week, it's going to be one year since the horrific tragedy of the Grenfell Tower fire in which 72 people died and another 70 were injured. Um, I'm recording tonight's show just after watching the BBC documentary about it that basically reduced me and my wife to tears. Um, And it's still so haunting that it happened. I can't believe it's quite been a year. I drove past it uh, on the Westway again the other day and it's... You just want to stop and stare and and also kind of wish it wasn't there. It's horrible. Um, It's taken just under a year for Theresa May to apologise for not meeting any of the Grenfell residents immediately after the fire, uh, which is pretty bad. I mean, I know I still haven't sent thank you cards out to everyone who attended my wedding nearly two years later, but nobody died at my wedding due to incompetence, neglect and greed, no matter what the other guests say. Um, But at least May's inadequate apology has arrived quicker than it is taking to rehouse 95 families who were displaced by the fire and are still living in emergency or temporary accommodation. May originally said all residents would be rehoused within three weeks. And then last September, Housing Minister Alok Sharma said it would be within one year. And then Sajid Javid with his round, round head like someone removed his human face and replaced it with a lychee just weeks before he moved from Housing Secretary to Home Secretary, two very similar sounding jobs that he's equally bad at. He said it was very unlikely that those people would have housing sorted by June the 14th. And that is just one of so many issues that still haven't been resolved in the past year with over 500 children um, and even more adults having to be referred for mental health treatment due to PTSD for witnessing the fire and the deaths of loved ones and friends to the fact that there is still no ban on the combustible cladding that was used on the tower there is going to be a consultation on the latter but while that happens over 200 buildings around the UK are still at risk the Grenfell Tower inquiry is now underway and some of these issues are already being covered by that as well as who is to blame at Kensington and Chelsea Council and the Kensington Chelsea Tenants Management Organisation the landlords for ignoring tenants' concerns for well over a year before the fire. It's also being questioned whether the fire brigade's policy of stay put should now be scrapped too. The closing statements of the inquiry are happening end of October, so it's likely the first report is going to appear a short time after that. But that is a long time to wait for those who've been affected directly or even indirectly by this, with immediate action needed right now on housing and care. Whatever happens, the fire that happened a year ago and those that died must not be allowed to die in vain. And questions have to be asked about privatisation, tenant management companies and why there is such a lack of compassion from the government for those that suffered and lost friends and family. I'm hoping to get someone from Grenfell United or Justice for Grenfell to come on the podcast at some point. Um, Obviously not some point soon. They've got a lot of other things on their plate um, emotionally and I'm sure uh, media and everything else. Um, It's a very sensitive subject though and there's so much to cover and it's not something I feel comfortable doing, especially as the community has been so amazing in supporting everyone around it and they've also been very cautious about the media that they're speaking to and I think rightly so. So it'd be good to get someone who's directly involved in the area to uh, talk about it. Um, Anyway, Anyway, I would recommend that you check out supportgrenfellunited.org. Grenfell Speaks on YouTube and Twitter and justice4grenfell.org for more info. Um, Also, the grenfelltowerinquiry.org.uk for full details of all the hearings and statements so far. Um, The BBC documentary just called Grenfell that was on tonight as I record this was heartbreaking but really important viewing. I would totally recommend it. Um, And if you go back to episode 67, I interviewed Lee Pickett from the Fire Brigade Union uh, about the firefighters at Grenfell and all the cuts that have happened to the fire service um, and how dangerous that is do go back and listen to that Uh, lots of thoughts and love with everyone taking part in the memorial events this week too We don't need no education, shouted children during Pink Floyd's track Brick in the Wall. Although if they had had some, they'd have sung, we don't need any education. I mean, of course, that song was a purposeful rallying against rigid schooling. But had Pink Floyd written that now? Well, for a start, it would sound terrible as two of them are dead. But ignoring that, they'd probably have written a chorus that went along the lines of, we do need an education, put in a system that has more funding, please, reasonably sized classrooms and with a more balanced curriculum, because frankly this doesn't work for us and our teachers seem sad. I mean, sure, it's no way as catchy, but it's far more of an important message in many ways. I'm not saying the Conservatives haven't helped education since they've been in government, but it does feel like the only really positive thing they did for schooling was move Michael Gove from being Education Secretary in 2014, meaning that the MPs that have followed in his footsteps have, at the very least, not been Michael Gove. 
Over the past few years, there have been new turns on unpopular grammar school proposals, class sizes increasing in two-thirds of secondary schools, access to free school meals being reduced for primary school children, and a push of something called T-levels, which I don't understand, but having had three cups today, I think I'm nearly at the boss stages and should get a certificate. So this week, I thought I'd get an update on what is going on with the English education system. Again, shout out to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, who I have no clue about. So maybe just to replace this section with some sort of soothing panpipe covers of Rage Against the Machine, I guess. Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, And so I spoke to Laura McInerney. Uh, Laura is a schools expert, having spent six years as a teacher, then becoming editor of Schools Week, as well as an education journalist for The Guardian, Observer, New Statesman and the TES, among others. Basically, when a child tells her he or she are in year five, she doesn't panic like I do and assume they've travelled from the past. Laura very kindly let me ask her all about current funding levels, what the deal with grammar schools is, and, as you'll hear, why my inability to not laugh at children means I definitely shouldn't be a teacher. Hope you enjoy. Here is Laura. Theresa May's had this grammar school drive f- since she's been Prime Minister. Um, last year, there was a big call to, to put out loads of new grammar schools, and that's kind of now been decreased to just increasing funding for grammar schools. Um, is any of that going to help the state of education services in any way? Um, do you think it's a good idea? So the one bit of evidence that anyone who likes grammar schools kind of clings to is a report by the Education Policy Institute a little while ago. And that said that at the very margins where there are children who sort of just get in, who might be from very poor families, there might be a tiny boost for them. Um, but it's very, very marginal. And it's it, you know, it's, it's the only piece of evidence. Um, in And sort of opposite that, you have boodles of evidence from decades that show that there are some really negative effects. So in the areas around the country that have grammar schools, what we tend to find is that if you're quite clever and you went to a grammar school or you don't, you do you do pretty well. Um, but if you're in a grammar school area and you're a poorer student and you don't get into the grammar schools, then your results are slightly depressed. And that's just because in grammar school areas... They, those schools will often suck in the best teachers. They will often suck in more resource. They will suck in the parents who have more social capital to help. Um, and it's just really, really difficult then for the other schools to try and serve the entire community who are left over, if you like. And, and you just said that so the students that do well, they do well in a grammar school or not regardless. They do well in comprehensive schools as well. Yeah. And if you look at, say, London, and London has some particular effects, but... In London, we have lots and lots of uh, pupils from very low-income families, actually, who do extraordinarily well in their comprehensive schools. They they far outweigh what's going on um, in the grammar school areas around the country. So there's no evidence to believe that really bright kids, wherever they are and from whichever background, if they go into comprehensive schools, wouldn't go on and do well. So, I mean, then then probably the obvious question is, if that's the evidence, then why the push for grammar schools? Is it purely kind of ideological? And if so, what is... What is the ideology, you know, what is the ideology behind that? So Theresa May went to a grammar school, and I think that's important. She had a political advisor, Nick Timothy, who left after the last election because everything bombed so badly. And he went to grammar schools and is a very, very big grammar school advocate. And, you know, it's quite aspirational. The thing is, if you say to people, roll this dice, and if you get a one out of six, your child will go to an amazing school. I think a lot of parents would roll the dice, and that's how grammar schools are presented. It's a chance to win and and do better for your child. But what they don't say is the very existence of that dice, of being able to roll it, means that if you don't get a one and you get a two, a three, a four, a five, or a six, the school that your child will go to will be slightly worse. And that's the bit that um, is actually the reason why Conservative and Labour parties, ever since the 1960s, have shied away from grammar schools. As a politician, you want 100% of people to vote for you. And if you can only help 20% of parents' children go to the best school, you are going to be on to a political loser. So that's, that's crazy, then. If, if politicians have been shying away from it since the 60s, but Theresa May thought, oh, well, now's the right time. That's a completely mad decision to make. Um, I mean, is Yeah, anything... it was insane. It was a completely insane decision to make. I still don't really understand it, other than thinking that it was going to be very aspirational and or a sort of dead cat. You throw it out there while Brexit is going on and it was something else for people to focus on. Is there something, just sort of playing devil's advocate, is there something to be said for the... Because the, they, they've now said they're going to increase funding in grammar schools by 50 million rather than 
make loads of new grammar schools. Is there something to be said just for giving those existing schools more funding anyway because it's good to give schools more funding or is that then still depriving other schools from that funding and, you know, causing a bigger problem in that area? So it depends where the funding is coming from as to whether or not it's a clever idea. And um, so I was the editor of Schoolsweek newspaper for like three and a half years. And we did a big investigation at one point uh, when we looked at what was happening in grammar schools. And they have been expanding for a while anyway. And that's just because we've got population growth in a lot of the areas where grammar schools are. And certainly in the next few years, there is this wave of, of sort of they're about 10 nine-year-olds at the moment, sort of the 10 and nine-year-olds, there's loads of them. We had a big baby boom about nine years ago. And so they're starting to come through secondary school in the next few years. And if you're in a grammar school area, they have to go somewhere. It, it is easier to build some extra classrooms on schools that already exist than to run around rapidly building new schools. So I think it's, it's fine, it's smart to put a few extra classes into grammar schools. Kent, for example, has already had the equivalent of a new grammar school in terms of expansion in the last few years anyway. But the thing with the funding is that you always have to remember it's a counterfactual. For every pound that you spend somewhere, is there a pound that you could be spending somewhere else? And that's the, that's the real issue with if this is just cash that would follow that pupil wherever they go and they happen to go into a grammar school, that's one thing. But if we have £50 million worth of cash, I would never suggest that we spend it in schools which already serve pupils who, who, who all go on and do very well. You know, there are other children, for example, who don't pass their GCSEs, who are excluded, who then get into pupil referral units and we can basically already see the prisoners of tomorrow. They're going to cost us a fortune when they get older, and I would rather that £50 million went to improving services for them than for children who are probably already going to go to Oxbridge or came, you know, to Bristol or something. Sure, yeah, well, that was the other thing I was going to ask. Does this kind of, you know, can you see that this kind of selective education then leads to the lack of diversity that we're now, is now being highlighted in, like, Oxbridge uh, universities? Um, you know, is, is, does, is that kind of a slope that if you end up in a grammar school, you're more likely to go to these universities and it starts that division quite early on? Uh, not really. The issue there is that they're selective universities. So um, it just so happens that bright children in some parts of the country go to grammar schools. So all of those ones that then get those top grades who go into university come from a grammar school somewhere else in the country. They're all in comprehensive schools. And there are more than enough children in state comprehensive schools getting three A to A star grades each year that would enable the entire cohort to come from there. But you can't just pick people for that reason because they're in a, in a comprehensive. So I don't think that's what causes the lack of diversity at university. Um, I think that's just about picking kids who get A's. Right, sure. That's fine. I was wondering if there was a kind of continuation of the ideology of kind of selective schools, certain pupils, and then they that carries on. Because I mean, I I was looking at the uh, the T levels, and obviously a scenario that I know nothing about. But I was, uh, <laughs> is that a you know, is that a good idea? Or is that then say that certain subjects are you know different to others and maybe shouldn't? You know, I was wondering if that then separates certain people from going to certain higher education places as well. So you're not alone in not understanding or knowing much about T levels. I think that is also true of ministers a lot of the time. <laughs> um, so, so T levels are supposed to be a kind of vocational equivalent to A levels. We have gone round this mill about a million times, and the same mistakes are being made with the new versions of T levels. Are very complicated. How exam boards will offer them is being complicated. The grading system is overcomplicated. And what's slightly bizarre is we have got these things called BTEC nationals, which are run by the one for-profit exam board. And I think that's why the government don't necessarily like them. But BTECs have served quite well for a long time. So I don't really understand why we're spending all of these millions and millions of pounds to try and create new vocational qualifications when we do have some that work quite well. Um, but the government are going to go down this route. Chances at the moment of it working when I ask people in the know so will they still exist in 10 years' time? Kind of vary from about 10% to about 30% chance of success. Oh, wow, that's really bleak. <laughs> what, is that? what a huge waste of time and money. That sounds um, We've really literally done this, though, about every five years for the last 50 years. So there's no reason to believe it will be different this time. I mean, is that, and that, that, I mean that sort of brings me to another 
the question, which is, you know, are, and is, is anything that the Department of Education doing at the moment based on kind of benefiting education? <laughs> or is it kind of all on some sort of weird ideological drive? Because there's, so I've spoken to quite a lot of, um, you know, this thing called Comedy Club for Kids, and we, we go into schools and we teach children stand-up, and the amount of teachers I've spoken to have just said... We, don't, you know, what is this curriculum about? We, you know, it's causing a lot of problems. I mean, is the Department of Education doing anything that you think right now is actually benefiting education? Oh, so I think, first of all, we have to separate out the officials and the civil servants who I think work incredibly hard in the Department of Education. And obviously they are at the whim of ministers all the time. And I think, I think everyone in education, even if I vehemently disagree with them, I think everyone is trying to do their best job and they truly believe that what they're doing is going to benefit education. On occasion, there are politicians who will pick a policy that they also believe will be very convenient for the polls or very convenient when it turns to election time. But by and large, I think most people are doing what they believe will benefit. Even the grammar school stuff, Theresa May, Nick Timothy genuinely believe that there are poor, bright children who need to have an elite education in order to go on and become parts of the elites in the future. They really believe that. Is it based on evidence versus ideology? Certainly the grammar schools is, is one case where I think there was overwhelming evidence against. It was almost like climate change or homeopathy, you know, with really talking at that level. The rest of education, though, it's not easy to get good evidence. It is a social science. It's very dependent on teachers. It's not like medicine where if I give you this drug, it doesn't really matter our relationship too much. This drug will still work on you independently. Teaching doesn't work like that. If you don't have good relationships with your pupils, it will affect um, what's going on. If they don't like subjects, they will just zone out. And so we find ourselves in an area where actually you can't always have evidence. As a politician, you sometimes just have to do what you think is the right thing and you hope somewhere down the line that works. Remember David Blunkett once saying that to me. The best he hoped for as education secretary was that someday down the line when he was 80 years old, someone who was 30 or 40 would be able to come up to him and say, I was at school when you were the education secretary and this is how your policies helped me. Yeah, that's a, I, I suppose that's the problem. As you say, it's got long-term, very long-term results that you can't check immediately. But then there's been... Um you know, there's been a lot of call out at the moment about the amount of tests that children are having to go through. And that seems to be having an immediate effect on children's learning that must be able to be gauged somehow. Yeah, so I run this app called TeachTap that surveys around two and a half thousand teachers every day. And um, we've been getting some really interesting results on this. So we just asked about SATs, actually. And what we found is teachers do say that pupils are coming out with higher academic standards. They genuinely believe that primary school children now on the back of these tests and the more rigorous curriculum, they are definitely learning more and are smarter. The downside is they also say that children don't like learning as much and that they're no longer as creative. The government's view, particularly the school's minister, Nick Gibb, is that sort of doesn't matter when they're 10 or 11. They will develop that creativity and that love of learning because they're now smarter. And that gives them quick wins. They'll become motivated and you develop those skills later. So it's all very well to say that children love learning. But actually, if they can't read, they very often don't love learning. So I do think that Nagib has a strategy, but again, we kind of have to sit tight and see whether it works. And if it doesn't, we could just have a generation who are incredibly good at punctuation, but loathe learning and um, don't bring creativity into the workplace. And that would be a nightmare for the economy. Yeah, it'd be a real nightmare. And also, I mean, you know, I, I sort of feel uh, it's something that I feel as a creative person, I suppose, if you can vaguely class my job as that. But, I, you know, I, I really feel like creativity has been kind of ignored by the last eight years of this government quite a lot in the arts foundings kind of disappeared. And I know that a lot of secondary schools are kind of losing some of the creative subjects. Um, there must be, you know, hasn't there been evidence over the years that children kind of need creativity in order to kind of um, help with everything else as well, you know, help expand their minds in with, with other subjects too? Um, so basically learning anything is helpful for learning everything. So we could show that learning, you know, chess GCSE or a trapeze GCSE would be good for you learning history and geography as well, because it's about brain development and neural pathways. Um, I think that, again, the government's view would be children will still be creative. If you look across the world, it's very often when people are the most oppressed that they come out with the most creative things. But I don't think that's a reason to do it. Like, I don't think we should therefore <laughs> oppress people <laughs> so that their creativity comes out. And I do think that some of this becomes about opportunity. So let's imagine 
if we took music lessons out of the curriculum or art lessons out of the curriculum, children would still make music. They would still um, sing, they would still listen, you know, they would create stuff. But would they always have access to instruments? Where is the teacher who will run the orchestra? Where is the teacher who will do the plays? And if these children don't have parents who are available, able financially and with their time to take them and get an instrument or teach them, then those children start to lose out. And it's about opportunity, I think. And the funding is what's really starting to bite on that. It's not just about this rigorous curriculum. If what you have is a rigorous curriculum and then a threadbare cupboard of resources because there's no funding going into school, then I think we find ourselves in a really difficult time. And what I think you will find if children don't have creative outlets is we'll start to go backwards on things like juvenile crime, which has dropped immensely in the last 20 years. Children don't spend their times vandalising phone boxes, largely because there aren't any phone boxes anymore, but also <laughs> because they're very busy with their work and with their clubs. You know, bored teenagers are not a good thing for a country. That's true. Yeah, I, I, I'm also amazed that there is a positive to the lack of phone boxes. That's a, that's great. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with Laura in a minute, but first... Silver Turkey. Gene, read me. Silver Turkey, we need your assistance now. David heard the sound on the radio and knew what he needed to do. Project Fear, he shouted back at them. Davis, the commander shouted at him. This is not a drill. We are under fire. Three of our men are down. We need backup now. Davis sighed and finished his beer. He pressed the button to reply. Look, it's not going to be anywhere near as bad as everyone says. Whatever is going on, it won't be as bad as Mad Max. Davis remembered to take his finger off the button before doing a massive belch, unlike last time. Davis, the commander shouted again. Why did you send us here? It's a complete trap. You've sentenced us all to death. Davis rolled his eyes. Moan, moan, moan. That's all you do. If you just committed to this, you'd be fine. I never said it'd be easy. Davis flicked through the various different late-night sex line channels in his hotel room. We're overwhelmed. Please, please help us. But his voice was cut off by the sounds of rapid fire. Phew, thought Davis. I haven't even got my trousers on yet. Brexit So, votes on the EU withdrawal bill start the day that this podcast is released, as I mentioned last week. What's likely to happen is that the Conservatives will be whipped to vote and reject all the amendments the House of Lords made. We know this because former Home Secretary and personification of gormlessness, Amber Rudd, has joined forces with haunted thumb Ian Duncan-Smith to tell Conservative MPs, Remainers and Brexiteers alike, to back May or pave the way for a government led by Puddle Lane resident Jeremy Corbyn. Yet again, proof they won't invest in infrastructure if the Tories will go out of their way to make sure that paving isn't done. So it's likely fear of Labour winning whenever another election will be, combined with the terror of having to contract out roadworks, means the Conservatives will likely vote against all 15 of the Lords' amendments, and these range from staying in the Euratom Agency, transferring the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights directly into UK law, and the big ones being that the government has to report to Parliament about what it's done to form a customs union with Europe, that the government should negotiate continued membership of the European Economic Area, the EEA, 
and that the date of Brexit should be removed from the face of the bill. Probably because Bill is very sick of being used as a calendar and would really like his face back now. There are also three amendments relating to how the Henry VIII powers can be used and basically all of them see what the government is doing in its power grab and say no, stop that you awful people and the government are likely to go no we won't and essentially the last several months of our lives will have been a complete waste of time yet again. But the question is, will Labour be backing the government or opposing them and supporting the House of Lords amendments? Well, last week, the opposition made an announcement about changing their own Brexit stance, even though no one was really sure they had a Brexit stance in the first place. According to Corbyn and Shadow Brexit Secretary and bad computer drawing of Gordon Ramsay, Keir Starmer, Labour are now, and yes, get ready for this jargon splurge, demanding full access to the internal market of the European Union, underpinned by shared institutions and regulations, with no new impediments to trade and common rights, standards and protections. What does that mean? Uh, I don't know, very little. It's a bit vague. And it could mean staying within Europe somehow and keeping membership of certain groups, uh, like the He-Man Master of the Universe Club, probably, or something. It does mean Labour are not doing a Norway option, which would mean voting for the Lord's Amendment to retain membership of the EEA, which won't go through because the Conservative and the DUP will vote against it anyway, and then certain Labour MPs very leave constituencies who don't want free movement will vote against it as well. Uh, so that any frontbench Labour MPs who vote against it will just risk going against Corbyn and then getting the sack because they've gone against the whip and then that will show that Labour's still divided and a mess and boom suddenly they've lost a vote that they would lose anyway but worse than that. Basically it's a bit like a pub football team going up against I don't know Brazil for a laugh but as the 30th goal goes in one of the team thinks it would be appropriate and worth screaming out to the crowds that all his friends are arseholes so he can't even join in the consolation drinks afterwards. But regardless of this and regardless of them unlikely to vote against the AEA amendment the language in that jargon blurb is ever so ever so slightly more towards a softer Brexit on account of that bit where it's no more obstructions to trade like you would have in the single market basically if we stayed in the single market there'd be no more obstructions to trade and they don't want to stay in the single market but they'd like no more obstructions to trade so it means they're edging towards a single market type solution so if that is what they mean with that vague jargon, then the big final vote on the big final deal of the EU withdrawal bill is in the autumn. And if Labour oppose that, along with Conservative remainders and any other members of the Commons who aren't happy with it, then they could get a majority and either block Brexit entirely or drastically change the entire deal for better or worse and possibly cause another election or something mad like that. Or maybe everyone will just scream at the top of their voices for like three weeks straight until they all die. Who knows? Basically, it's losing the short game to play the long game, maybe. If that's what they're actually doing, it might not be what they're doing. It could be that they don't have a clue, and by the end of the week, things will still be less clear than Sarah Huckabee Sanders' conscience. So, yeah, Labour now looks set to be backing a softer Brexit option, though not a fully soft one, but more one that when you bite into it, you know it won't kill you, but it might cause you some awful bum troubles later. Mediocre dinner now, bum troubles later, but after that, possibly that glorious feeling that you only get when bum troubles stop and the future looks bright. Well, I like that analogy anyway. It was kind of like a weather report, but for bums. As to this Brexit backstop. A backstop is so-called, apparently, after a fence used in baseball to stop the ball leaving the pitch. If it's called a pitch. I have no idea. It's basically rounders in pinstripe, isn't it? Who, who knows? So a Brexit backstop is basically there because the Department of Exiting the European Union still haven't hired enough civil servants to be fielders or ball boys or whatever it is you get in baseball matches. Ball handlers? That sounds a bit wrong. So a backstop means that there would be a temporary customs arrangement between the UK and the EU to stop there being a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland until a solution can be found. But because no one has a solution apart from David Davis, who keeps insisting they could, I don't know, have a border but be carried by a series of constantly moving voles, or a border made by 256 men in anoraks with laser pens pointing them at the ground where a border should be so it only works at night. Because there are no solutions apart from those shit ones, May has given up even pretending that there might be a solution and not put any sort of end date on the backstop. So this temporary solution will be like when you had that temporary admin job where you knew that they wouldn't get rid of you because you got your work done too quickly and you were much more fun to talk to than the rest of the office because you still had hopes and dreams. But no way did they ever want to pay for you to have a holiday because they don't like you that much. And what all of that says to me is that even the government don't have any faith that they're going to get this done. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of confidence that I like to see in our elected leaders, knowing full well that they're pushing ahead with something they don't think they can do. Hooray! 
You might have also seen news that Human Pedalbin and founder of Leave.eu, Aaron Banks, was offered a business deal by a Russian ambassador involving six Russian gold mines. All of which sounds like a brilliant James Bond plot, but is actually more indication that Russia may have had some influence over the Brexit referendum. Banks has previously said that he only had one meeting with a Russian ambassador, but leaked emails show he had at least three, including one with talking fetid frog anus Nigel Farage, just before they both visited Trump and that Banks handed over phone numbers for Trump's transition team to Russian officials as well. Cabinet Minister David Lidlington, you know, the one who always looks like his suit is slowly digesting him, he's called for an investigation into this, which means it's likely that the government will do something about it circa 2045 when everyone involved is dead. Still, it does sound quite a lot like a Bond plot, including some emails that show Banks and his cohort Andy Wigmore tried to get Lord Guthrie involved in the goldmine deal, as well as Peter Hambro, who is an old Etonian dealer in precious metals and known as Goldfinger. Get that? Yeah, I really hope Danny Boyle does his job as director of Bond 25 and shapes an intricate story about Daniel Craig sifting through hours and hours of unassholes emails before shouting at a variety of primetime programmes that book the main villains to an unbalanced think piece on why MI6 have upset the will of the people. Or I suppose they could just do a remake of From Russia With Love. Kind of be the same, wouldn't it? And now, back to Laura. Funding you're saying is uh, is a big issue, and again, that's something I've heard just from the few teachers I've spoken to, but I know the Department of Education recently announced another £50 towards expanding special schools, but apparently that's come from an old fund. So are they actually... Are they protecting the school budget or is it sort of depleting in real terms? What's happening with that? It is depleting in real terms. So it's protected in the sense of it's not going down in the numbers in the column that you see that that says how much cash is available for schools. But in real terms, it's not kept up with inflation. It's not kept up with cost pricing on schools. It's not kept up with the need to pay greater pensions for teachers and the higher national insurance and the apprenticeship levy and so on. Um, The government have this lovely ploy at the moment where they put announcements out and they say, um, we will be doing this thing and there's number Billion, I call it sort of, you know, 10 million or 3 million or 53 million or whatever random number billion goes with the policy. And then, as you say, we discover that, in fact, this cash was promised three, four, five years ago and it's not new. But they're doing that very cleverly because the public just here number billion. That sounds like a big amount. The government are clearly putting cash into schools. Sure. And, and is um how much of the kind of the funding that is available is dependent on school ratings and things like that? Is that does that affect this? Because I saw, and again, I feel like I'm jumping subjects quite a lot, but there seems to be so much to cover with education. Mode. But is um, you know, I heard that Ofsted now uh, are quite unreliable in their reports. Is that affecting what money schools are getting, and is that affect how Ofsted's being seen? So schools are largely funded on a per-pupil basis. That has some local variation built in, and that will change shortly, and we'll go to a national formula. It's not the case in Britain that school, well, in England, or in fact in the others, but in England specifically, it's not a, it's not funded by the quality of a school. So it's not like an outstanding school gets more money and a struggling school gets less. There are pots of cash available for certain policy areas. So if you want to run a teaching school where you train teachers, then you can get some cash for that, and you can only do it if you're of a certain standard and you're right the inspectorate has come out and said it isn't able to inspect as regularly as it would like to be able to because of various laws that were put in a few years ago and that means now they're not as confident that their ratings are correct so you could have a school that is outstanding that applies to train teachers gets money to do that but may not be outstanding because in fact it hasn't been re-inspected in the last 10 years or so Right. Okay. So that's that sounds like that sounds really unfair. <laughs> that doesn't sound right at all. Yeah, and that's also because Ofsted, the inspectorate, have had their funding cut dramatically as well, and that's still going. And so they've now come out and said, with the little amount of cash we're being left with, and they've got lots more responsibilities looking at children's secure centres, looking at nurseries, looking at private apprenticeship providers. We can't possibly continue the same level of service for schools, and so. You know, we just cannot continue to have a system where we really rely on those Ofsted gradings without something changing in the system. So, 
overall, I mean, is, is funding is, is probably the biggest problem that schools are facing right now. Is that right? Would it be right to say that? I think it's the main thing that, that uh, well, school leaders will say that funding really matters and they are struggling with keeping teachers, getting teachers in. We have a lot of teachers leaving the profession every few years. That's always been the case. So they'll tend to stay for about five years and then quite a lot will leave within that time. But also now we're struggling to get people in. They don't want to come and train in the profession at the same rates. And that's a problem. And is that because low pay, but also incredibly long hours and the workload, it seems to constantly increase? Is it? I mean, I suppose there's not many... It used to be, I know people wanted to teach and so they go into teaching, but I now does it almost put people off, I suppose? Yeah, well, we've also got a demographic dip coming up. So for the next five or six years, not as many people go into university and come out of university. So we've got this demographic lull before the big baby boom comes through. And so fewer graduates who've now got what they feel is a lot more debt from university. They look around, they see other graduate jobs with higher starting pay because teachers' starting salaries are quite low. And also, we're increasingly hearing teachers say that they want to work three or four days a week because it's the only way to get the job done with the workload. But they're only getting paid three or four days a week. And so quite rightly, these 21-year-olds with an enormous amount of debt and are saying, well, I can't work three or four days a week and do that job. So I'd just rather go and do something that's a bit easier and pays me more. So we might see, or we're quite likely to see some sort of crisis in the next couple of years with a complete lack of teachers. I mean, more than we've already, there already is a lack of teachers. We're already at that point. I think the teacher shortage, the ministers have now, I think in the last few months, started to accept the crisis word. I've always felt that as long as there were supply teachers, we were in an interesting position because it meant that there were teachers, they just were choosing not to do full-time jobs. And so that's telling us something about the profession. But I think we may even be getting to a point now where agencies are struggling to get staff and then we're really snookered. Oh, God. Right. So I've got to plan homeschooling for my daughter then straight away. That's there. <laughs> That's where we go. Or just accept that she may end up in massive classes. Um, you know, one of the ways around this is big, bigger classes. But our classrooms tend to be built for 30 children. And if you do have a situation where children are in bigger classes, it doesn't just mean that there's more of them. It means they're shoved up against windows and, you know, balancing books on top of fire hydrants and things. So it, it's, it's, it's a bit dismal and it is hard to get a handle on how we resolve this. The government are desperately trying. I can't say that they're not. They're throwing money at this. They're throwing initiatives at it. They're throwing man hours at it. But, but it is very, very difficult. And until they resolve the workload problem for teachers then I think it's not going to be a compelling enough profession, even though it's brilliant and I recommend everybody to do it because I loved being a teacher. Um, I don't think they're going to get enough people in. God, well, I really hope they do because I'd be terrible at homeschooling my daughter. She'd have an awful time. So, Why um, don't you become a teacher? Would you not do it? I'm I'm not good. I'm not good at the authority bit. I'm very good. I, I've taught kids stand up, and I'm very good at being the fun person that pops in. Uh, I am very very bad at the telling them off if they've done something wrong. <laughs> I just laugh. I laugh a lot. So I'd be, you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to learn sad face, which is what you do, <laughs> sort of overly dramatic sad face at your daughter when she does something wrong. Oh, I'm, tre- I'm already dreading. Already dreading that. I'm already yeah, far too bad at just finding it hilarious. Um, it's the problem of a massive child having a child. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm, so the, the government are currently doing a report into pupils that are excluded from schools. Um, why? Why does that need to happen? And, and is that is that important? So every year we have uh, these thousands of pupils who are kicked out of school and they're put into pupil referral units or alternative provision, some of whom are amazing, life-changing. But only 1% of those children go on and pass their five GCSEs. And if you look at any prison around the country, about 55 to 60% of prisoners were excluded from schools and went into these pupil referral units. So we know already... Like, we can go and look in these schools and see the prisoners of tomorrow. I just think that's amazingly tragic. And it's great that the Education Select Committee, that's run by a number of MPs who ask ministers questions, have said, this is an outrage. There are more and more pupils being excluded. We know they don't go on and get their GCSEs. Is there some solution? Can we get better providers into this market? Can we get better teachers in? So there's going to be a charity called The Difference who are doing a sort of teach-first model, trying to get teachers to go and work in people referral units just to try and solve this problem that is so obvious. Um, and I think it's a really good thing the government are doing it. I just hope that it doesn't get lost in the next few years amongst all of the Brexit stuff, um, because it could be life-changing for quite a lot of children. 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, it sounds like it's a very obvious uh, result as to what happens if they're expelled. That's, I mean, it's a very obvious um, correlation. Um, which, I mean, but is that kind of affected by the fact that you know it's it's not very publicly popular to help prisoners in this country for some weird reason? Uh, people aren't, you know, that you know, whenever there's public polls on rehabilitation, it's always no, just keep them in for longer. Is, is that that then affects giving children treatment younger, or is there, is there a difference in? Yeah, I, on board with this. so I, I think I think the issue with exclusions in particular is that teachers don't want to feel that bad behaviour will be condoned and those children will stay in school, not least because if teachers are dealing with bad behaviour the whole time, that makes the job less pleasant and so they leave. But I think we also have to look at what a phenomenal waste of talent. We're on about, about 50,000 young people at any one time. And I was recently talking to a British manufacturer who's really struggling to employ people. And they only employ 15,000 people in total. So imagine if you could get these 50,000 young people, their qualifications, and make them employable. We could solve some serious skills shortages. They also go on and cost about an estimated, I think it's something like 1.52 billion over their lifetime in additional health prison, so on benefits. So in the end, it's just like, even if you don't care, even if actually emotionally you're not connected to this issue, those billions of pounds could be going into making sure that every other child is in a classroom that is smaller, in a school that's not falling apart, that teaches art, that does music. I would much rather the money went there than on someone's prison bill. It's just such a phenomenal waste. Yeah, absolutely. God, that's such a large amount of money. Um, it's billions. Yeah, completely crazy. Um, well, the very last question that I want to ask you, and that's something that I ask all the guests, um, is apart from yourself uh, and, and TeachTap and Schoolsweek um, and your Twitter, which educational journalists and papers and websites would you recommend that listeners check out um, for sort of solid reporting and information on education? So having built Schools Week and knowing the team there really well and still working there, I obviously have to say Schools Week. But I do think that... Um, Nearly four years ago now when we started, we really did set out to try and do reporting in a different way and really make it um, really relevant and look and find unusual facts and truths in things. Um, and I still rate Schools Week very highly on that. I also write for The Guardian. Their education coverage is fantastic. Um, there is something called the IFT Data Lab, and they do amazing data work. So you can find them, Education Data Lab or IFT Data Lab. They do these amazing blogs where they look at what the data is showing us. So recently they did a really interesting one that showed they, they think they've been able to find out through maths which primary schools might be artificially inflating their primary schools for the SATs exams. So they didn't name any of the schools, but they, the maths is very clever. And if you're quite geeky, that's worth looking at. And then there's a think tank called the Education Policy Institute who do these very big detailed reports. They did the one on grammar schools. And they're also a fantastic go-to. If you've got a really nerdy topic like school funding that you want to look at, go to the Education Policy Institute's website and find their reports. They are amongst some of the best. Thank you to Laura for making time to chat with me. You can find Laura on Twitter at Miss McInerney and that's uh, Miss underscore M-C-I-N-E-R-N-E-Y and her website is at lauramcinerney.co.uk with links to many of her articles for The Guardian and Schools Week, among others. Teacher Tap uh, that she spoke about in the interview is available and free on all your phone app stores. So if you are a teacher, do download and use that to give feedback on how your experience of teaching is going. Um, I'm assuming there's just a button that you can press for it to send a three-minute long scream so you don't have to do it yourself every single day. The transcript of the whole show, including the chat with Laura, will be on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website soonish, should you want to have a look, and all the links she recommends will be added by the end of the week as well. Also, BBC Two have just recently shown a three-part programme called Grammar Schools, Who Will Get In, that is apparently excellent and currently on iPlayer. I've not had a chance to see it yet, but I've been reliably informed that it is very worth a watch. Check the BBC with all their docs this week, doing very well. Um, I have got one more guest booked in at the moment, and then I'm going to be looking again for recommendations. I would really like to interview someone about Chinese politics. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'd like to get someone on uh, properly uh, to talk about Grenfell um, and also someone about party donations and how that all works. I'm really interested in. So if you can suggest anyone who might be good for those subjects or any other subjects you think would be interesting, 
please contact me via the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, or via the at Parpolbro Twitter or Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group. Or just call me on my landline number, to be honest. Um, I'm not going to give you a number because I have no idea what it is. No one's called me on it for well over three years. I'm not even sure if it works anymore. But if you can find it, why not just give it a ring? And I'll be so confused by what that noise is, I'll probably just throw things at the phone till it stops. As always, best to email. And that is the end of this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you for absorbing these sound waves into your head holes once again. And please do spread word about this show to other humans or exceedingly clever animals. Uh, review it on all your podcast apps all at once with multi-fingered dexterity. And please donate to the Patreon or Kofi accounts if you can, because ice cream is getting expensive. I mean, um, shit. Uh, I mean, because it all helps make this show better through the medium of my ice cream consumption. Hey, I'm, I mean, I'm joking, but seriously, with topical shows, it's all about the good scoops. Am I right? Sorry. Big thanks, as always, to Acast, who kindly stock this show amongst their top range of audio groceries, and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all the musical noises, and whose new album, Under the Patio, is available for pre-order now. So go and do that. This will be back next week, when I'll be talking about David Davis's shock resignation that he managed to do while promising that he definitely wouldn't resign, and then accidentally sending a letter to Theresa May that was just his misspelled order for resin for his garage floor. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by Randy McJab's exciting new account of Brexit Secretary David Davis's time in the SAS. I don't have to be clever to do my job. It's in all bad bookshops now, but I wouldn't read it. You can probably just have a guess what happens in it, and that way you'll be covered if anyone asks. Here's another short excerpt to leave you with. That's it, I'm leaving, said Davis. No one looked up. There's no way I'm going to stay here as a rival artist SOS member. Officer Stewart looked up. It's SAS member, David, with the artist's rifles. You're the only one that needs help. Davis grunted. Why are you such a traitor? Anyway, I'm going unless you can get me a dog that can fly and has rockets on its back so I can just whistle it orders and I'll take out baddies while I'm at the pub. The entire room let out a tired sigh. Officer Stewart looked up from his book. David, flying dogs don't exist, and even if they did, they'd have to be army certified, and you'd have to be of a high enough qualified level to use them. Yeah, yeah, of course, said David, the light dying in his eyes. I was just joking anyway. He started putting his stuff back on the desk, screwing up the post-it note with all the dog's names on it, and throwing it into the bin. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.